Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Getting around our capital city comes with a lot of challenges. A recent study examining the Greater Hartford area might change that. The Greater Hartford Mobility Study was first launched in 2020 to improve mobility in the area and increase transportation. And not just on the highway, but on sidewalks too, to increase pedestrian safety and walkability. And now that it's complete, stakeholders are working on implementing some of the big projects to make Hartford a better city to live in. But it's going to take some time, possibly even decades to implement. And joining us now to discuss the Greater Hartford Mobility Study and to give us an update on transportation in our state is Connecticut Department of Transportation Commissioner Garrett Eucalito. Commissioner, welcome back to where we live. Got a question about transit and highways where you live. Give us a call, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And just wanted to check on the sound actually really quick. All right, we're good to go, everyone. And here with us in the studio is, again, Transportation Commissioner Garrett Eucalito. Uh, you can also join the conversation and find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live if you have a question. So, Commissioner, let's get straight to it. Can you tell us exactly what is the Greater Hartford Mobility Study and what will it look like? Yeah, it's a great question. So it's not just uh, what many people think it is, which is uh, focused on just the highways in the Greater Hartford region. Uh, it started off you know, back in the 2010s, uh, first focused on the aging viaduct elevated highway through the center of Hartford. We have to replace that. Uh, we have to do something with it. Um, but, you know, we heard from the public, we heard from the communities that we should be looking holistically at transportation in the greater Hartford region. Uh, so uh, the DOT took a step back, worked with the Capital Region Council of Governments and other stakeholders, the cities of Hartford, East Hartford, and regional uh, uh, communities to look at how can we improve all of mobility in the greater Hartford region? We don't want people just driving on the highways to get to where they need to go. Uh, so the study that we released yesterday uh, basically incorporates four different large pieces. One would be lowering 84 through Hartford and shifting it a little bit north. Um, makes it a little bit safer for everyone to travel on that um, because 84 uh, through Hartford is one of the most uh, – uh, crash-prone regions in our state due to the deficiencies there. Um, the next portion would be fixing I-84 through East Hartford, shifting that a little bit north, building a new bridge across the Connecticut River to get people um, off the Buckley Bridge and to connect to 8 to 91 over a new bridge. And then it involves lowering and capping I-91 along the Connecticut River to reconnect Hartford to the Connecticut River even more so than we already have today with riverfront recapture. And the final piece is uh, untangling uh, Route 2 and 84 in East Hartford, where there's a lot of potential 
There's a lot of potential land that can be developed there on the East Hartford side. Uh, build a new bridge um, to the to the south there to reconnect Hartford and East Hartford again. Um, and then we're going to look at how can we improve bus service, how can we improve rail service, how can we improve pedestrian safety, bike safety, and improve local roads through Hartford and East Hartford. And very, very timely, I think just yesterday, the Department of Transportation released a final report on transportation in the future uh, for the future of Hartford. So can you give us a little quick update on that and what to expect from it? Yeah. So, you know, what we're planning to do, it, so it's a long process, right? So it's, these are mega projects. It's going to cost uh, several billion dollars to implement um, and it's going to take decades. Uh, but there are some things we can do in the short term to make some progress and improve quality of life for the re- uh, residents of the region. Uh, so the next step that we do is we're going to kick off and advance some of these projects into what's called NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act. Essentially, it's an environmental review. So the new bridges, the new alignments for the highways, um, all those me- what we call mega projects, those are going to have to advance into NEPA uh, have a significant environmental review over a two to three year period. And then there's some other projects that can be um, spun out, have a shorter review period because they're not as large. Um, And we can start executing on some of those projects, uh, fixing Pulaski Circle, improving Main Street in East Hartford, improving North Main Street in Hartford. Uh, Those are things that we can do a shorter environmental review on and actually improve quality of life for individuals. And then after we get through the environmental reviews for the mega projects, then we start designing them and then move into construction um, in the next decade. And so a lot of this, of course, is about the highways because that's where a lot of people obviously are on the road day in and day out. And you mentioned 84 earlier too. What does the data say about accidents and fatalities that happen in this area of the highway in Hartford? And how does that sort of inform you in terms of the mega projects in the long term and the short term? Yeah. So um, the section of 84 through Hartford, uh, you know, when we look at uh, crash data, we're looking at uh, crashes that occur for every 100 million uh, vehicle miles traveled. And the section of the elevated I-84 section and then the, the lowered portion through downtown Hartford is some of the most crash prone in the entire state on the interstate highway system. Uh, we're looking at uh, you know 1,500 crashes per 100 million uh, vehicle miles traveled, which is astronomical, um, and it's largely because that section of the highway was built for and designed for only around 75,000 vehicles per day. We're seeing 175,000 vehicles per day pass through that corridor. Um, it's just not built to carry that much traffic. The in the on ramps and off ramps are spaced too close. People are ju- jumping on. People are jumping off. Uh, and it's leading to a significant number of crashes. The good thing is it's usually congested, so most of those crashes are not serious injuries or fatalities, but it's still every crash has a uh, fiscal impact. Um, It impacts a household, um, may take their car out of commission so that they have to find another way to work. Um, It's a a heavy economic burden for people, even if you're not injured or or killed. And... um is there a way to reduce these collisions? I mean, I suppose the project is part of that solution, but is there any long, a short-term thing that we can do? I'm on the highway pretty much on a daily basis. I'm one of those. Um, and the things that I see within my short commute, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, uh, driver behavior has definitely uh, eroded in the past three to three years or so, three and a half years. Uh, drivers are more aggressive. They're speeding more. 
um, all across our highways across the state. So I know Connecticut State Police are um, they're graduating a current class of, of troopers. They're recruiting for another class of troopers. They're trying to refill the ranks. Uh, that is critical to reduce speeding, impaired driving, and especially distracted driving on our interstate highway system. Uh, so that is going to be critical moving forward. We are trying to implement some small fixes here and there to try and um, uh, reduce, uh, you know, s- increase friction. So there's things called high friction surface treatments where we go in and do a micro mill um, and make the, the pavement a little more tacky, if you will, so your tires can grip it a little bit more. So some of the curves you you may uh, not, uh, you know, get out of control or get out of your lane. So we're doing things like that to try and reduce some crashes during some hot spots on I-84. But the big thing we need to do is, one, do the project, make it a more modern highway, um, and uh, and lower it and cap it um, to reconnect the communities. But two, uh, we need people to, you know, have law enforcement out there to, to catch people who are just driving aggressively. And with that amount of cars on these highways. Now, what would it take to update the highway? Because you'll have to shut down parts of the of the corridors or, or all of it. How do, what is that going to look like? Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, what we want to do is we don't want to just replace what we have. We don't want to replace with an elevated viaduct that splits the city. Uh, so what our proposal is to lower the highway and be able to cap over it to try and reconnect uh, the portions of Hartford that were split historically. And so that uh, actually gives us an opportunity where if we can move the railroad a little bit um, and uh, that will free up space where we can begin to lower the highway while continuing to allow traffic to pass on portions of the elevated viaduct. Um, So that way we don't have to do it right underneath elevated portion. Um, So that won't necessarily disrupt traffic as much as it would have if it was built entirely in the same footprint. Uh, So... There will be ways to accommodate traffic um, over the multi-decade period, um, increasing bus service, increasing rail service into our capital city and into East Hartford will allow us to accommodate mode shift to get people out of their cars, onto the rail, onto the bus uh, to free up some capacity on the highway. Well, and then talking about footprints, too, I, I think a lot of people like to walk more, but that is a different kind of problem that we're, we're launching into now. So as you're planning this, you know, what did you learn about pedestrian safety, walkability, and what can be done to increase that in this region? Yeah, so we know that there is a lot of issues with uh, sidewalks in the greater Hartford region. Um, you have uh, You probably have more sidewalks in greater Hartford than you do in other portions of the state, uh, but there's a lot of disconnect. Um, Sidewalks start and then they end, um, or they're not maintained well, they're not ADA accessible. So if you're in a wheelchair, um, it's very difficult to get around. Um, And that's what we heard when we went in and did a lot of the house parties we attended, um, especially in the north end of Hartford. Um, I attended a backyard picnic party that hosted by Voices of Women of Color um, a couple months ago. Um, And one of the main issues they brought up to me was, you know, Sidewalks are uh, uh, not continuous. People can't uh, get to where they need to go. They can't get to the, to their apartments. They can't get to the doctor's appointments. Um, so we need to ensure there's some ADA-compliant curb ramps, uh, very visible crosswalks with pedestrian pound, uh, countdown clocks, um, and things we can do to slow down traffic on some of those side roads. Uh, one, of, one of the neighbors brought up to me speeding on Blue Hills Avenue. Uh, so what can we do to slow down cars that are racing up and down Blue Hills Avenue? 
And we've been talking a lot about the highways and, and talking about pedestrian safety just now, but and you talked a little bit about public transportation earlier. So can you talk about uh, what can be done to update that, to update the public transit and make it more reliable and more expansive and accessible? Yeah, so um, we are constantly looking for ways we can improve the bus public transportation in the greater Hartford region. Um, it has more bus service in Greater Hartford than we do in New Haven and Stanford combined, essentially. Um, and it's a critical link here. Um, so many people rely on bus public transportation um, as their primary mode of transportation. Uh, so we are looking at, um, we're basically built out to the gills at our bus garage in uh, the meadows up in uh, North Hartford. So we need to build a new facility to house additional buses. Uh, and as we continuously update our buses uh, with new buses, including electric buses, they're more reliable um, and, and they, less maintenance required. So that's a positive for us. We're inc- uh, including technology on the buses now where all of them are GPS tracked. You can download the transit app and see where your buses are, uh, when it's coming, and you can pay um, with your phone instead of having to you know, try and find the exact change because the, the buses don't give out uh, any change. Uh, and the other big thing is uh, CROG, uh, Capital Region Council of Governments, uh, published a report called Rapid Routes where they looked at how can we improve bus public transportation throughout the greater Hartford region, and they identified some key corridors. And then they also talked about we need to expand hours of operation because not everyone has the 9 to 5 schedule. So we need buses to go later at night on key routes so people can get home after their second shift. And we've done that in other portions of the state. We did that in New Haven. We just launched uh, this past year, the budget included uh, nearly $9 million a year for more bus service across the state. Um, We did not include funding for Hartford because we're still waiting for this study to come out and identify where can we make those investments. So now we're primed to be able to do some more investment in bus service here in, in the greater Hartford region. And I think uh, for a different kind of investment, you mentioned rails earlier too. So putting in a rail to Boston and New York has been talked about for a very long time in the greater Hartford area. So is there any hope that this might happen soon? Is it going to span out, span in? You know, what does it look like? Yeah, no, uh, that that is really exciting. Uh, so uh, a couple months ago, we secured uh, about $140 million to continue double tracking the Hartford line because while a large portion of it is double tracked, there are still portions that are not in the West Hartford portion, Windsor, Enfield area, and in Hartford. So we have money to do most of that. The final remaining segments that will not be double-tracked are Hartford and one tiny portion of Enfield near the bridge that goes over the Connecticut River. Uh, so as part of our plan here, we are planning to uh, slightly shift the railroad to make it not have that significant curve it has today um, and to finish double-tracking and build a new train station that will allow us to have much more frequent uh, service up and down the Hartford line uh, into Springfield, down to New Haven. Um, and with the new locomotives we're buying, which are dual power, so that means electric or diesel, and the new rail cars we already purchased and they're on their way coming in 26 and 27, uh, we'll be able to increase frequency. And if Massachusetts can finally do their portion of the work, which they did get some federal funds to do to improve the tracks between Worcester and Springfield, that opens up a world of possibilities for Hartford to get much more frequent and routine service from Boston to Springfield to Hartford to New Haven to New York to D.C. Uh, through Amtrak service. So, And even if you don't take the Amtrak chain, if you just want to take the Hartford line to Springfield and change, you'll have an opportunity to change trains there and head into Boston 
So we're really excited about the potential with Massachusetts investment, with our investment from the Federal Railroad Administration. And I think we've covered a lot of ground just in this quick conversation we're having here. Just one more question for you before we go to break. But there's so much in this study, clearly, and there are so many components of the report. But are there areas that you really want to prioritize that you feel like has a very a much urgent need to get to? Yeah. So the the really the aging viaduct that we have uh, through Hartford, you know, it it's reached the end of its useful life. We did a a very large repair project to keep it up, <laughs> basically, uh, for the, until we could get to this major project. So that has to happen. Um, and I do not want to see us just repair that viaduct. I want us to undo the damage that was done to Hartford um, with I-84. So that really is our North Star. If we can achieve that, if we can lower the highway, reconnect the city, um, free up 200 acres of land between Hartford and East Hartford uh, for redevelopment, for green space, that's going to be a huge win for us. And that's really what we are marching towards. We're hearing from Connecticut Department of Transportation Commissioner Gary Yucalito, and we're talking about the Greater Hartford Mobility Study. And if you live in the Greater Hartford area, give us a call. Let us know what you like to see updated in the region. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today, we're talking about the Greater Hartford Mobility Study and what might be done to improve transits of all kinds in this region. And with us is Connecticut Department of Transportation Commissioner Garrick Igalito. And joining us now also is Matt Hart, who is the Executive Director of the Capital Region Council of Governments. Thank you so much for joining us, Matt. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning, Commissioner. Glad to be here. And for our listeners, we want to hear from you, too. Let us know if you have a question or comments about trains, highways, or even sidewalks. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Matt, I want to start with you real quick here. Can you first describe how the council was involved in this study? Uh, Thank you, Catherine. So we have uh, been participating in the study throughout uh, and the DOT, I think they they and their team have done a very nice job holding regular project updates with us and uh, and our team. We've been meeting 
uh, monthly for the last uh, last couple of years. So, you know, I think they've they've really done a nice job in in that regard in terms of keeping us updated. And and we play a very important role, especially on the planning side, because in addition to serving as a council of governments, we are also the region's metropolitan planning organization or MPO. That's a federal designation under uh, federal highway in which we administer federal transportation dollars primarily dedicated for planning purposes. And as this continues, you know, as a as a stakeholder, we, the commissioner covered so much ground earlier from public transportation to pedestrian safety. You know, what do you see as the most important components of this study? Uh, great question. Well, I, I'd like to highlight, you know, maybe five points. I, I think the things we're most excited about and the commissioner touched on all of them. Uh, first of all, the, the safety improvements, you know, for pedestrians, pedestrians, as well as uh, drivers. We're also really looking forward to the transit improvements, both uh, rail and uh, and bus that will facilitate mode shift. If we can get more people using public transit, you know, that will hopefully alleviate some of the uh, some of the crashes we're seeing, as well as a reduction in uh, harmful emissions. Uh, third, I would note to the addition of a, additional green space and access to the river access to the Connecticut River, which would greatly enhance quality of life, economic vitality, and equity, and equity. Just looking at how uh, I-91 has cut off Hartford, particularly North Hartford, from uh, the river. There's a variety of redevelopment opportunities associated there. Uh, Multimodal, the connections to trails and linear parks, would love to talk a little bit more about that. And then resiliency, you know, with climate change, how do we harden this infrastructure so that we can better deal with flooding and other extreme weather events uh, in the future. So those are some of the things I wanted to highlight, Catherine. And Matt, I want to ask too, you know, how is the housing and mobility a part of this study? You know, what have you heard from your stakeholders in terms of of housing and and mobility together? So housing is a very critical issue in our region and in the state and arguably nationally, right? And and, uh, affordable housing is a major component of that. Workforce housing is a major component of that. Our organization for several years now, we have worked to promote what's called transit-oriented development, or TOD. And uh, under the TOD model, you are looking for mixed-use development within walking distance of a transit node, You know whether it's rail or, or bus. And really where you have access to all aspects of everyday life, within walking distance of uh, of that transit center. So you're able to ideally work, uh, live, recreate, et cetera, and, and rely almost exclusively on public transit. So we, we, we see that this plan really opens up some significant opportunities to further promote TOD along the Hartford Light, CT Fast Track, and other bus corridors. And I want to pose the same question to you, Commissioner, in a little bit about housing and mobility, but I also want to take a quick call from John Gale, who is a Hartford City Council member. John, you are on the line. Oh, well, thank you. Good morning to everyone. Good morning. Go for it. So, uh, first of all, let me just say that um, I love uh, the mobility study, and uh, I love all of the various ideas that have come out of it. Uh, so, you know, really great to hear that. I want to add a couple of comments uh, on a couple of other things that might be considered. Uh, first would be the um, 
Griffin line, the rail line that goes to Bloomfield, um, I think it would be wonderful if that was considered for a trolley line as opposed to um, eliminating either the freight train or keeping the freight train. I think the trolley works better with pedestrians and um, bicycles and things like that. Um, the second thing would be opening up the Connecticut River as another mode of transportation. Currently, you can't navigate above Hartford. And we could navigate all the way to Springfield. We could at least look at it. So just want to throw out those ideas um, and get some feedback. Thanks. Well, thank you so much for that call, John, and for your comments. And actually, Commissioner, would you like to respond to that? I think the trolley idea, I'm picturing San Francisco trolleys, and they really do work. Yeah, no. uh, So the Griffin Line actually is one of those um, early action projects that we have committed to the city of Hartford that we're we're going to work with them to, to deliver on. So both the Griffin Line as well as uh, Mayor Bronin is calling Riverlink, which is improving the pedestrian bridge across I-91 to the Connecticut River. Um, But the Griffin Line, so railroads are regulated at the federal level by the Surface Transportation Board. So one thing that we have looked at is uh, there are commercial clients currently using that rail line uh, for freight deliveries. So we can't really shut that down. Uh, We essentially have to maintain freight service on that railroad Unless there was no commercial viability, then we could go to the Surface Transportation Board and try and close that line. Um, So what we are working with the city on is can we do a trail adjacent to the rail, a rail with trail instead of a rails to trails. Um, We think that it's a great opportunity to improve pedestrian and bike access uh, from Hartford into Bloomfield, um, serving University of Hartford and other neighborhoods up and down that line. there are difficulties in trying to do, if freight service is on a railroad, it's very difficult to also get um, a, a trolley on there. It, you, you have to have what's called heavy rail if it's going to serve. So what you see on the New Haven line and the Hartford line is the type of passenger service that would be allowed to co-join with freight. Uh, so a lighter vehicle like a trolley or a light rail wouldn't realistically, uh, wouldn't be regulated. Um, the regulators wouldn't allow that, but it's a great idea. Well, thanks, John, for those great comments again. And we were talking about housing and mobility before the call, Commissioner. And, of course, we can't talk about transit without talking about housing. So how are you hoping this might impact the neighborhood of Hartford and hopefully maybe attract new residents to the city? Yeah. So um, by investing in public transportation, um, continuing to invest in the rail service, um, we're already seeing TOD happen uh, in the region. You you look at uh, West Hartford. Uh, the investments that are being made in Elmwood um, as a result of the fast track station. Um, one thing that we hope to see is, as part of this plan, which I, I didn't even talk about yet, is expansion of fast track. We really would like to see bus rapid transit um, expand through the region, potentially across the river into East Hartford. Um, that would allow for more transit-oriented development in East Hartford, where those fast track stations would be located, uh, potentially. And uh, similarly, with the rail service, by continuously investing in rail service, more frequency, you're going to have more investment near those stations, including a new uh, new rail station in Hartford. And with over 200 acres of new land freed up as a result of uh, this project, that's going to be a lot of land available for things like housing, uh, open space, parks, or uh, mixed-use development. 
And I mean, we've so we've covered so much ground here with with the project. I know we're not we kind of scraped the surface, and and you mentioned it a little bit earlier. But what will it take to implement the projects proposed from the study? What is the timeline like? like we know <laughs> so, we mentioned it's going to be a while. <laughs> yeah. So um, next step, begin the environmental reviews. We're looking at essentially a three decade long process to get to where we want to be um, with all of this. Um, you know, because it's going to have to be staged. First, we have to do the rail line um, and, and then also work on the on the fast track system. Um, that will then enable us to lower the highways, uh, build a new bridge, uh, build another southerly bridge, uh, reallocate the highways in East Hartford, then cap I-91. Uh, so we're looking at from now until in the 2050s, really, when it can be completed. Um, and it's going to cost... Um, you know, in inflated dollars, around $12 billion. And that may seem like a lot, but you're talking about over the lifespan of a 30-year program. Um, and it's going to require a partnership with both cities, uh, the city of Hartford and town of East Hartford. It's going to require our partners at Capital Regional Council of Governments. It's going to require the community input. Um, we're going to have hundreds of more community input sessions for help on designing and figuring out a path forward on these projects. And it's going to require our federal partners, our congressional delegation, to help us secure the federal funding we need to make this a reality. And before we let you go, can you give us an update about uh, aggressive driving in our state? And the last time you were on, about six months ago, you said things weren't looking too great on this front. And so how are things looking now? So as of last week, we've had uh, 303 fatalities in our state. That is slightly... Uh, I don't want to say better, but fewer fatalities than we had at this point last year. We ended last year with 366 fatalities on our roadways. Uh, so it's a slightly lower number of fatalities, but it's still unacceptable. It's still much more um, uh, you know, unacceptable than we had in 2019 when we had like 240 or so. Uh, so uh, aggressive driving is out of control. Uh, people are not paying attention behind the wheel. Um, and really it's going to be a concerted effort. Um, a community agreement needs to be reached that that type of behavior is, is just completely unacceptable. It's putting people at risk. It's a selfish decision. Um, and I really think that we need to like talk to our peers, talk to our friends, um, and continue to share the message that don't get behind the wheel. If you're drunk or high, put down the phone. Um, and you know, don't, have those uh, antisocial behaviors behind the wheel weaving in and out of traffic because you may think you're a great driver, but you don't know what all those other drivers around you are doing. Um, and that split second decision can, can end your life or end someone else's. Well, and going into the holidays, do you have any advice for those that are going to be on the roads to travel? Yeah. I mean, I always um, try to remind people, take the keys away from someone. Uh, a lot of people, it's a, it's a holiday season. We're out celebrating. Um, take a taxi and Uber or Lyft to get to where you need to go. Um, take public transportation to where you need to go. Um, and if you have friends who drove somewhere and you see they've had too much to drink or, or they, they smoke too much, uh, take the keys away. Um, they'll thank you the next day. And just one more question here. Timely, um, actually, we've had some storms coming through over the weekend and, and yesterday as well. So what do we know about storm damage for the past few days uh, in terms of our roadways and infrastructure? So thankfully, this storm was not as bad as the previous storms we had earlier in the year where we had significant damage up in Norfolk, Cornwall, or out in uh, Scotland, Connecticut. Um, but we did have um, a serious problem with a culvert in Sprague on Route 138. Um, as well as some uh, embankments that have been washed away. 
so as these rainfalls are continuing to get uh, much uh, heavier um, all at once, we're going to continue to see damage to our aging infrastructure that was designed for rainfall events from 50 years ago. They're not designed for the amount of rainfall we're seeing today. Um, so we're constantly going out and trying to inspect all of our culverts um, and do a risk analysis of how do we address this in the future. We've been listening to Connecticut Department of Transportation Commissioner Gary Ugolito. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. You also heard from Matt Hart, who's the Executive Director of the Capital Region Council of Governments. Thanks, Matt, for being with us today. Thank you, Catherine. Happy holidays to everyone. And happy holidays to you. And coming up next, we're going to be switching gears. Pun absolutely intended. We learn about a klezmer band hailing out of New Haven that will celebrate its 25th anniversary this year. This is where we live. Stay with us. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. You're hearing a song from the band New Haven Capella, a New Haven Cosmer band, and they're celebrating their 25th anniversary this year. And here to join us is David Shevlin. He's a music director and bassist for New Haven Capella and producer of their new album, New Haven Style. David, welcome to where we live today. Thank you, Catherine. Good morning. Something we should start every morning with with that song because that is waking me up right now. Can you start by telling us about the origins of the band? Well, the band got started in 1998 uh, when a group of friends and I realized that we had not much to do on December 25th. Um, there are some stereotypical things one might do going out uh, to dinner at any restaurant that might be open on December 25th. Um, or going to a movie, but we wanted to do something different. Um, and we'd been getting together and playing music, so we thought, why not put together a little concert uh, at the synagogue where I attend, Congregation Mishkan Israel in Hamden. And the folks at the synagogue went along with it, and we rehearsed, put on the show, had a great time. So then the next year we thought, why not do it again? And here we are 25 years later saying, why not do it again? Can you describe klezmer music for our listeners who might not be familiar with it? Klezmer music comes from various regions in Eastern Europe, reflects um, the uh, Jewish need for music for celebration, whether it's a, a bar mitzvah or a wedding or some other kind of celebration. There is always a need and desire for music to dance to. So it's primarily music to dance to of all different styles. And we can, we're going to hear from two members of the band right now, actually. This is uh, Mandy Jackson and her 15-year-old son, Eli. I've been playing uh, music for a while. Um, so when, when I heard, like, this was something new to me, like klezmer music, wasn't something I was like really like immersed into before I heard them play. Uh, and it sounded really cool. So I decided I'd try it out. I, I mean, I felt a connection to the music because it's connected to my family's history and 
Um, you know, I had uh, heard it at, you know, weddings, bar and bat mitzvahs. Um, it's also really fun music to play. Um, I've always been a fan of of jazz and other improvised music, and it's very closely connected to to that tradition as well. Um, sometimes when folks have never heard of klezmer uh, and, and ask what it is, I say it sounds a little, little bit like um, like Middle East, like like I'm um, sorry, like your Eastern European uh, Eastern European New Orleans music. <laughs> um, it has a real celebratory um, and sort of participatory uh feel to it and it's sort of um the kind of music that's it's it in a lot of in a lot of ways it's it's intended for people to dance to and to participate in and so it's always been fun in that way i, I also find that it's it's expanded my horizons like in terms of what i can listen to and what i can play generally when, when it comes to music it's definitely something where it's an opportunity to play music that even if like I hadn't listened to as a kid exactly and wasn't necessarily played in my house, that I know it's music that's connected to my own family history and goes back many generations. And um and certainly another another interesting component of it is that there's when there's singing um going along with the music, it's often in Yiddish and it's a language that I didn't grow up hearing that much, but I had grandparents and great grandparents who um, spoke Yiddish, um, and it's always interesting to, it, it's always been something that's been interesting to me, and I feel connected to that and to the idea that this is a language that, you know, was in danger of actually dying out, um, and it's had a real revival, and, and I've always found it really great to be able to stay connected to that language through the music. Um, we have some amazing singers in the band, and it's always fun when they sing. It's something that I see as, like, being able to express myself more than anything else that I would be like playing because mainly what I do is I play classical music and something like klezmer is it's just it, it provides more opportunity for me to be able to show my own character and personality through playing it than anything else it's a really wonderful uh, community um as I'm sure you've heard there's a very wide age range um and uh it's and there are also there's a very wide range of you know how long people have been playing in the band and some people have been play playing in this ensemble for the whole 25 years. Um, and it's fun to be able to learn from the other musicians and to sort of um, take their lead and, and to, you know, always discover new things in the music together. Um, some of the songs are uh, like really, really, really fast with like not a lot of breaks and you have to rely on each other to, <laughs> to support you in that. Eli plays the violin. I know he, he has that experience. They have a pretty cohesive yeah. little section there, right? Yeah, uh, there, there. Are, uh, generally, at any like concert, there'll be uh, three or four other violinists, and I would not be able to play without them. Um, <laughs> shout out to Steve. <laughs> um, it, it it is definitely like with it within your section while playing. It is very very important to have other people who are more knowledgeable and experienced about it than you are, because. Uh, it, it takes like a lot to be able to play that music at the level that you have to play it at. You are listening to Mandy Jackson and her 15-year-old son, Eli, who are both a part of the band. And David, with what you just heard, you know, can you respond to, to what Mandy and Eli have said? I, th I think her description of the music is very similar to what you just said, David. Yeah, I mean, there is that. But what really touched me the most 
uh, is the different ways that they spoke to how um, when we play this music and when we make this music, uh, we're keeping in touch with a very rich and long-lived culture. And we're keeping that culture alive through young people and old people playing together, which I think is really special. You go to a local club and chances are the band is all going to be roughly around the same age. They're all going to be maybe even the same gender. And when you come to hear the Capella, when I'm involved with the Capella, what excites me is that we have people like Eli who started uh, when he was about 10 or 11 and he's now 15. Um, and then we have people like Jim, uh, our clarinet player, who's been with us for at least 20 years and he just turned 90. And we're all playing together and we're all learning from one another. Sometimes the younger players get so advanced that uh, we have to learn from them. And I think that's just a really exciting and rich aspect of what the group provides for us as musicians and then for the community as a whole. Well, I think it's really amazing to hear the intergenerational relationships you have with this band. And you talked about cultural connection just now, as Mandy has done uh, when we heard the clip from her. But she also talked about connection or connecting language through music. You know, is that something that you feel that's important as well? Um, it, it really is. Yiddish was a language that I grew up around all my life. Uh, I've always been comfortable with it. Uh, my father, who's now 93, uh, has taken of late um, to speaking to me often in Yiddish. And thankfully, because I was around it, I understand enough to to know what he's saying. Uh, and um, it's just it's just a, a beautiful heritage once again that um, for a, a period there in the 1950s and 60s seemed to be slipping away. It's, it's had a revival. Thank goodness. Well, it's really good to hear that there is a revival and and with that kind of language preservation, can you also talk about the efforts to preserve this music and pass it down from generation to generation? Well, what you're hearing is what we do. Um, part of the idea of moving from, say, a once a year event to a, a year round group was is to educate people through doing. Uh, and the best way to do that is to encourage people in the community who are interested in playing, uh, in coming to rehearsals, uh, to coming to our workshops. Um, we're planning, we haven't said it, but we're going to probably do some kind of a klezmer dance workshop this February. Um, and those are ways that, that we engage people so that by doing it, by being a part of it, by coming to a room where it's happening, you keep the culture alive and then you become a participant and an active um, shaper and retainer of the culture. Well, and then as a young participant, you know, Eli mentioned that he had tried out for the band. So how do people typically get involved with the band or, or how can they be uh, get involved with the band? Well, the most frequent way it happens is somebody shows up, hears us and says, wow, I'd like to do that. Uh, and then uh, I add them to a, a group list um, and Catherine, I know this is going to sound crazy because there are organizations here in this community that insist not just on one, but several auditions. Uh, but for me, this is very much an open door policy. I think that uh, when people are trying something new and difficult, 
uh, it's important to embrace them and, and find a way for them to come into the ensemble and be a part of it. And again, it's learning by doing. Um, and sometimes, uh, as Mandy herself said, sometimes the set tempos can be really fast and people can feel like, oh, I, I can't play that. But, you know, you can play the slow songs. Well, it's funny when when you mentioned the crazy idea, I was actually thinking about Mandy describing the music, as, you know, fast tempoed and, and you got to keep up. And Eli mentioning that you really have to, you know, play with people who are knowledgeable, but hence the crazy idea of mixing different levels of musicians. So I'm I'm curious to hear, you know, how do people respond when you have these performances or, or how are your musicians responding to that sort of very kind of spontaneous celebratory music playing? Um, you know, room by room, it can always be different, but wherever we go, people get up to dance. Uh, we're often playing for uh, seniors, for example, at the towers, uh, and people will just get up from their seats and just start dancing. Uh, it's an infectious music. I mean, you heard a couple of recordings yourself. Uh, it really has just that big smile on your face kind of sound that you just want to get up and dance to it. Um, the other thing it has, which is interesting, is is use of particular, and I don't want to get overly technical, I tend to, to think a lot of music theory terms, but I tend to think of this music of having a quality to it where you hear both joy and sadness at the same time, depending on the melodies. These particular modes that the klezmer musician use allow us both to feel, you know, the joy and the pain that went along with Jewish existence in Eastern Europe in the 1800s and 19, early 1900s. Well, we're, you can't see us, but we're certainly smiling as we're listening to your description of the music. And we love some music theory, so it's okay to nerd out about that here. Um, but good, to, good. <laughs> and, and this year, you're celebrating the 25th anniversary performance. So how is, how is that different or how is that going to be special? Well, we've got a number of things planned. First of all, you've been playing some recordings uh, that will actually be released on December 25th. December 25th, our concert is going to be our inaugural event for our new album, New Haven Style. Um, and your audience can't see it, but yes, it's New Haven Style right down to the cover. The cover itself is looks just like a New Haven pizza box because nothing expresses New Haven Style like the pizza of our community. But in addition to our new album, which we're very excited about, uh, we're going to have a few guests, performers who performed in the earliest years uh, of the concert, who are finding their way back to sing with us again. And we're excited about that. Uh, and then to make sure to ensure that uh, people who come who aren't familiar with klezmer dance, but still want to get up and dance, we've asked a great klezmer dance leader named Adrian Greenbaum. Uh, to come up from her home in Fairfield to lead us in klezmer dance. And she's an amazing klezmer dancer because she can teach you the dance steps right while you're doing them, right in the moment. So we're ensuring that people don't feel uncomfortable about getting up and, you know, it, and, and just moving their body to our sounds and knowing that if they follow Adrian, they're going to just have a great time. We've got a couple of minutes here left, but I still want to ask, you know, both you and Mandy mentioned this music as a celebration of community and culture. I'm curious to hear, do you think this is also music that holds memories? Oh, my gosh, absolutely. Um, every time I play these these pieces, 
memories that may go back to Eastern Europe, may go back to uh, the family that I know uh, my father came from in the area that's now Ukraine. He came from a town called Tarnopol, where my great-grandfather was an innkeeper. And I always imagine that some of these melodies would have been heard around the tables, you know, at the bar in my great-grandfather's uh, inn. But of course, that's a fantasy. It's still a beautiful one to, for me when I play the music, but also the people with whom I've played the music over the years, uh, I hear them and I feel them when I play this music. And for people who are interested in finding more about this event and others coming up, is there a place that they can go to to check it out? Uh, we have a website, newhavencapella.com. Uh, for those of you who don't know how to spell New Haven, it's N-U Haven. Capella is K-A-P-E-L-Y-E. Dot com And I hope you will learn more about us and maybe a few of your listeners will get in touch because we're always looking for violinists. Always looking and clarinet for players. Violinists and clarinetters. Clarinetters, uh, if you're out there, Ists. Ists. Yes. <laughs> give David a call. Uh, about 30 seconds here, but just like to get some final thoughts. You know, what do you hope listeners can uh, will get out from this conversation? You know, this is a time of the year, regardless of your faith, if uh, you have a faith, where it's a time of family and it's a time of getting together and it's a time of community and it's a time uh, of real warmth. And this concert, this ensemble, it brings all that. I'll just say one of the things that really brings me together is that uh, both of my sons will be at the concert uh, playing with me on stage. And again, you know, it's it really is about generations coming together. Well, I hope you have a wonderful time. That sounds beautiful. You've been listening to David Shevin, who's the music director and bassist for New Haven, Capella, and producer of their new album, New Haven Style. Thank you so much, David, for being with us today. Thank you, Catherine. Wishing you a happy holiday. And a happy holidays right back at you. And for our listeners, you can also find out more about their band and performances by visiting our show page and clicking on today's show post. Just visit ctpublic.org slash where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.